A lifetime of hard work, children laughing in the kitchen, family photos on a restaurant wall, a legacy that lives on. It all comes from the power of a conversation, like the one Tommy Hall had with First Horizon Bank about taking over his father's Charleston-based restaurant business. Now the table is set for a whole new generation. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Tommy. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun, Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in, and the Mecklemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Tonight, I've got a really fun trio of guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. I've got a tour legend who's the only player to ever shoot 29 on a back nine in U.S. Open history, and he did it twice. You'll meet him shortly. I've got one of the greatest players in LPGA history here with me tonight, and a guy who has done more research into the biomechanics of the golf swing that will help us get a few more miles per hour out of our swings than probably anybody in the business. We'll talk about who those folks are in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to thank all of you again for keeping this show inside the top five of the podcast magazine Hot 50 list in the September edition. Your support continues to be amazing. Next on the tee is currently ranked number three in our football show, Thursday Night Tailgate, right behind it at number five in the podcast magazine Hot 50 list. Our goal, obviously, is to leapfrog both shows into the top two spots. So please continue to vote, and you can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. Your votes will make a big difference. Thank you so much for taking a moment out of your day to support both shows. It means a great deal to me. Okay, on to tonight's show. First up is going to be former PGA Tour pro Neil Lancaster. Like I mentioned in the teaser, Neil shot a back nine 29 in the 1995 U.S. Open, becoming the first player to ever shoot a 29 on any nine holes in U.S. Open history. And to prove it wasn't a fluke, he came back the very next year, did it again, this time in the second round. We're going to hear both of those amazing stories, plus his win at the 1994 Byron Nelson Classic, plus how he continued to play very well out on the PGA Tour into his 50s. Neil's going to be with me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a visit from one of the all-time greats on the LPGA Tour, Julie Inkster. Julie is sixth all-time in major championship victories with seven. She won three consecutive U.S. women's amateur titles early on in her playing career. She won 17 times in college at San Jose State. She captained two victorious Solheim Cup teams. She's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So you know what? We got a couple of things to talk about when she joins me about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from Chris Finn, the founder of Par for Success. Chris and his team have done some really cool studies on things that we can do 
to increase our swing speeds and gain a few more yards off the tee. Plus, we can do them at any age. And they've got a great app, so we don't have to go to the gym to do that sort of stuff. We can do the exercises and the drills virtually. So we'll hear all about that when Chris joins me later on in the hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. So thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends up at the McLemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there again this year for our annual golf trip. Second time around, even better than the first. Everything about what they give to you up there is first class. The accommodations are fantastic. The practice facility is great and even greater now after they've opened their Himalayas putting course. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is an understatement. Can't say enough great things about it, folks. Go online to themaclemore.com to see how great it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th always ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. And Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made their all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cat-back design and a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. If you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. Okay, my first guest tonight is Neil Lancaster. Neil is from Smithfield, North Carolina, was a self-taught player who didn't take his first official golf lesson until after he had turned pro, and that lesson was from L.B. Floyd, father of Ray Floyd. We'll talk about that in a minute. Neil turned pro in 1985, got his first win on the PGA Tour in 1994 at the Byron Nelson Classic in a six-man playoff. He finished second in the 2002 Canadian Open, he had five other professional wins at the 1985 Carolinas Open, the 1989 Pine Tree and Utah Opens, the 2017 Carolinas PGA Senior Professional Championship, and the 2018 Carolinas Senior Season Kickoff. He finished tied for fourth at the 1995 U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills, thanks to a final round 65 that featured a U.S. Open record 29 on the back nine in the final round. He ended up finishing four back at Corey Pavin. He shot a back 929 again the following year in the U.S. Open at Oakland Hills, this time in the second round. Since retiring from playing on the Champions Tour, he's become a PGA professional in the Carolina section, and I'm thrilled to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Neil, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. It's been hot, but everything's going good. It's starting to cool off <laughs> a little bit. We're going to get through the heat, but it's been a good summer. Neil, like I mentioned in your intro, you were self-taught. I read that you taught yourself how to play looking at pictures in magazines. So I got to ask, what, what made you pick up a golf club to begin with? And then how did you teach yourself how to play out of pictures in magazines? Well, my, my dad and my granddad used to play all the time. And uh, we had a couple little holes around the house with some, you know, some Maxwell House coffee cans and little irrigation flags. And 
And then we joined a golf course called the Cardinal Golf Club, and um, they would go out every weekend, so I'd just ride along with them. And I just started looking at magazines, was very visual and would look at people. If I read the articles, I'd get confused, kind of. So I just – I kind of emulate the best players in the world. And, and at the time, you know, Nicholas and Trevino. And so I, I kind of taught myself that way, and I, I developed a bad hook, and I just – I figured it out myself. And then uh, just, you know, I, I watched it every Saturday and Sunday afternoon on the tour with Johnny Miller with Pot in the day, and I, I just – I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I just kind of, you know, kept working at it, kept working at it, kept working at it after I got about 15 years old and was lucky enough to make the tour in um, somewhere around 84, I think. It might have been 81. I don't even know when I got on. But I was, you know, very fortunate to, to get out there, and I, I knew what I wanted to do. And I just I just kind of picked myself if things went crazy. I just would try to figure out, you know, back then the ball was so different, you could curve it a lot. So I, I played by feel, and I curved the ball a lot. And uh, I was just a visual guy, and that's that's basically, and I just, I caught myself. So at what point, was it 15 when you finally thought to yourself, you know what, hey, I'm pretty good at this thing. I could probably make a run at going uh, going pro. Well, actually, I played all other sports, too. And, and at 15, I started playing, I played baseball, and I was not a very good runner. So I, I put my mind to golf and started playing golf in high school. And I just started getting better. The more I played, the better I got. The more I played, the better I got. And, you know, and and people don't realize it takes a lot of work. I mean, I hit a lot of golf balls and figured it out myself. And sometimes you just got to go out and figure it out yourself. And like I mentioned in your intro, you didn't take your first official lesson until after you turned pro. And that lesson happened to be from L.B. Floyd, Raymond Floyd's father. So how did you meet L.B. Floyd and what made you approach him about taking a lesson? Well, I actually was, uh, I think I was struggling like my first year on the tour, and I, I actually didn't uh, regain my status. I mean, I, I lost my status, and so I thought I'd try to get better, and I was hanging around 140, 132, one, you know, just never keeping my card the first year. And so I decided to go see Mr. Floyd, who's up the road in Fedville, North Carolina, about 50 miles from me. Because Ray Floyd, you know, is a legend, and he was still playing good at the time. So I went to see Mr. Floyd, and I'll never forget, I walked in and, and met him, and he said, I'll be out in a minute. And I got a golf cart, and he got one, and we rode out, and he watched me hit about 15 range balls. And we went out, and he said, I'm going to watch you play three or four holes from a distance. So we went out, and he had a little dog with him in the cart. I'll never forget it. And uh, still was driving the old Cushman three-wheeler. And, um, I hit a few, played like three or four holes, and we came in and went in his office. And I said, well, Mr. Floyd, what do you think? And he said, looks like to me you got it, son. He said, you got a lot of natural ability. He said, go out there and do it because you've got the talent to do it, is what he told me. So I kind of took that as my lesson. I went out, and I retained my playing privileges and got my card back and stayed out there about 14 years before I fell apart again and had to go back to tour school. And then I got through that one and stayed out about three or four more years, and I had some injuries. But he told me probably the greatest thing ever. Uh, he said, you're a field player, so, you know, feel it. But back then, the balls and the clubs were so different, you could curve them. And uh, like I said, I was a field player, and I liked to curve the ball. But it, it gave me a lot of confidence when he told me that I had the talent to go do it and just go do it. 
So that's what I did. Speaking of Q School, I read in your PGA Tour profile that at one point you had $93 in your pocket, a van, and that was back in 1989. You still decided to go out there and give it a try on the mini tours. You ended up winning $96,000 in a four-month span and then went on to Q School. Is that accurate? That is that is that is pretty accurate. You know, ninety three dollars. Yeah, I had enough money to get gas. I had a full tank of gas, and you know, roughly ninety to a hundred bucks to get to the first event. And I, I played good enough to move on to the next one. And what happened actually? I was a club pro in Mount Olive, North Carolina, for three years out of college. And and the guy who gave me my start, he said, who was the head professional, I was you know pretty much beating everybody in the Carolinas. And uh, he said, I think you got some ability, and they got a little bit of money up, and they sent me off. And uh, my dad owned a car lot, and he had a van, and we took it. And so I got enough for my entry fees to play like 14 mini tour tournaments across the country. Well, I played my first one, and when I got to, uh, it was called the U.S. Golf Tour back then. And I got to Texas, and I shot 62 the last day to finish second, and uh, won about. $8,500, and that gave me enough money to keep going. And then I went on, and I won a, another U.S. golf tour in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, somewhere in Pine Free Open, and I won 20000 there. And then I went to the uh, – so I worked my way west because I wanted to see if I could compete against players all over the country. And I got to Utah, and – they said Keith Clearwater and J. Don Blake are playing this week, and they got their tour cards. And Keith Clearwater actually was doing them a favor. I think he had won Colonial that year or the year before, shot 64-64 in the last two rounds. So I went out there and played that. Uh, I set the tournament record, won it by nine, um, and won 20000 there. And I drove back, and then that's when I went to tour school that year, and I got through. Fast forwarding a few years. When you win the Byron Nelson in 1994, they shortened the event to 36 holes due to a lot of rain. Talk about the conditions that week and then winning the tournament in a six-way playoff. Well, it, it was so many rain delays. I've always got it, always loved the locker room because all the characters come out. We always talked and had a good time. So rain delays didn't really bother me. I mean, we just went in and had a good time. And I remember uh, it, it rained so much on the 14th hole that they took helicopters and drive the fairway out just so we could play the final round. And the whole cola machine was in the middle of the fairway when all the water went away. But anyway, I finished early. I birdied the last five, I think. And then I went in a six-man playoff, the largest playoff in history. And the craziest thing is Mark Rawson. I was the last to hit in the playoff off the tee. And Mark Rawson said, I have a funny feeling Neil is going to win this thing. And my caddy talked me into everybody was hitting driver off the tee at 18th hole at Las Colinas. And he said he hit a three wood. And the reason he wanted me to hit three wood is because I hit three wood nine iron in regulation. And so I hit three wood, and I had the exact same yardage I had in regulation. And I hit it about five feet both times. And luckily, you know, you got to have some luck. Everybody missed a putt, and I had a five-footer to win the Byron Nelson. You know, it just it changed my life, basically. It, it gave me a lot of confidence and got me in some events I wouldn't have got in. And it was, uh, and, you know, Byron Nelson, a legend, win his event. 
And uh, I didn't care if it was 36. A win's a win. And to that end, when you're getting ready for the six-man playoff, everyone's over on the driving range. They're hitting warm-up shots. I read you hit two shots, went back and sat down because you knew how you were going to play that 18th hole. Is that right? Yeah, everybody was out there warming up. and You know, everything's TV-based, and everybody's on the range with the caddies hitting balls. I got up, hit a couple. I hit a, I hit a three-wood first, and I hit a nine-iron second, and then I hit a couple drivers, and I went and sat back down on the bench, and everybody said, Bill, what are you doing? I said, well, we're only going to play one hole. If you don't bury the first hole, you're going to be out. So I knew if I didn't bury the first hole, I'd probably be out. And luckily, you know, I just sat down there and put my mind, I'm going to bury the first hole. That's what happened. I buried the first hole, and everybody else parted. So <laughs> the tournament was over. But yeah, I, I wasn't much of a much of a range rat. I was a, you know, I just that that, that wasn't my style. I, I I played some of my best golf, and Carlos Franco did the, the, did this because he's a field player. Is because I, I, I'm such a field player and visual that I I, didn't, I wouldn't even go to the range because you're just out there hitting straight shots and getting loose. And I would just walk to the tee. First hole's dog leg right. Just hit a little cut shot out there. But that that's, you know, golf's a crazy game. We practice on a flat lie, and we only hit it off of a flat lie 18 times all day off the tee box. <laughs> Most times the ball's below your feet, above your feet. So, you know, on the driving range, you're just hitting off a flat lie and hitting straight shots. And that's, that's good for getting loose, but that has nothing to do with the game, the driving range. So I got to ask you now, I mean, you're you're trying to get your first PGA Tour win. You execute the drive. You execute the second shot. Now you've got a five-footer, and I read it was kind of a downhill putt. You're standing over a five-footer to win a tournament. Were you nervous? What's going through your mind as you're standing on on top of that putt? Nervous as I've ever been in my life. Luckily, it was five-foot, and it was downhill left to right, and I could just barely touch it. I think if it was uphill, I probably wouldn't have made the putt, but since it was downhill, I knew that it, it was really fast, and I really just had to get it started online, and I, I, I did. You know, luckily it went in, and the hair stood up on my head, and just you know, it was it was a great feeling. And you know, guys, we that's one thing that I like to tell the audience is you see guys on the weekend. Tiger Woods, the greatest player ever, and these guys, they are nervous. They just know how to control their emotions. They are so nervous you can't believe it, and but they're controlling their emotions. And it's yeah, it's it's uh it's exciting to get in that position. I mean that you, the adrenaline's flowing, and you always hear guys hitting nine iron from one seventy five, and it's all adrenaline. They just know how to control the adrenaline better than some guys. Let's go ahead. One year later, nineteen ninety five at the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, you're hanging around par after the first two rounds, and had a had a tough third round, but in the final round. You shoot the round of the day, course record 65, and includes a back nine 29, which is another U.S. Open record. Talk us through birdieing six of the final nine holes. Well, it's crazy. I mean, I was playing with Fuzzy, and and we're going around the front nine, and we're we're one of the earlier groups out in the day. And, you know, we just we get to the back nine, and I snap hook it off a 10, and the best I can do is get it in the front bunker upside the green. Well, I get it in the bunker, and I get it up and down, and then I don't even know what holds a birdie, but I know that I made four putts probably over 50 feet, and Fuzzy said he could just feel that they were going to start going in after. I made two I made two in a row from 40 feet, 
Man, I think I'll never forget on the 15th hole, I had a putt, must have been 75 feet. And I hit it, and it, it was in from the time I hit it. And I was like, oh, man, this is something. But the most hilarious thing about the first one is John Daly was playing in front of me. He hit it in the bleachers left on 18 Shinnecock. Johnny Miller's first telecast. My caddy's from Canada, and he's smoking a cigarette. And I'm in the fairway, and I have no idea I'm breaking these records. And I'm standing there, and I look at my caddy, and he has smoked that cigarette all the way down past the butt, and he is shaking. And I said, Kenny, what's wrong with you? And he said, I said, Kenny, what's wrong with you? And he said, if you part this hole, you're going to break every U.S. Open record they got and set the course record at Shinnecock. And I said, well, I didn't need to know that. <laughs> so anyway, John Daly's up there, and he's taking a, a drop out of the bleachers. Well, they finally finished the hole. Well, now I'm really nervous. I hit it long and left over the green, and Johnny Miller first telecast says, well, he can't get this ball within 20 feet of the hole. I flopped it up as high as you've ever seen, and it rolled down there about three and a half feet, left to right putt, and I made it, shot 29, walked off. And what was great about that is my dad was there. Wow. You know, they came up, and, uh, you know, it, and it was Father's Day, because the opening was finished on Father's Day. And I was like, so anyway, I walk in, I shoot 65. They're saying, Neil, you need to hang around. You can win the tournament. There's 23 groups behind me. And sure enough, I think I finished fourth. And Corey finished one under. I might have finished two or three over, but that was that was that was a great experience there too. And then something about all the major championships I always played in, I always did real well. I, I was a golfer. The, the harder it was, the better I played. And I think it was because you had to, you know, like back to you had to visualize everything. So anyway, like you said, the next year we go to Oakland Hills, and. I'm not playing real well. It's raining. I'm 10 over for the tournament with nine holes left on Friday. My dad and his buddies are up there, and they said, we're going home. We'll see you tomorrow. So they get in the car and start driving back. Well, anyway, same scenario. Snap, hook it off the tee, hit it in the front bunker, get it up and down. Birdie the next hole, go to a par five. We are playing lift, clean, in place. It's a dog leg right. 12th hole, and nobody's getting home in two. Well, I hit it out there, and it plugged in the fairway, so I picked it up and put it on the plug mark and hit a driver over the trees, and it plugged the foot from the hole. So anyway, chip in on, I chip in on the 15th hole, and I've got a, I got an 8-footer. I got an 8-10-footer on 17 to get the 28th side. But anyway, I, go to, I didn't make it. I go to 18. And I hit it short of the green, and I chipped it up. I made about a six-footer downhill left to right to shoot 29 again. And I'm like, oh, boy, I went from I went from missing the cut to, I think, 14th place going into Saturday. And the funniest thing is my dad and them were halfway home. And and they said, you want us to turn around and come back? And I'm like, well, uh, obviously it's bad luck, Dad. Keep going home. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was it – was, uh, I always did good. I mean, the U.S. Senior Open one time, I played well in in that, and I, I I flew one in the hole for a hole in one. I've just I've done some incredible incredible things in in the U.S. Opens, but you know it is what it is, and I, I like it. The harder it gets, and the worse conditions. That's my kind of golf. Yeah. So is that what it is for you with U.S. Opens? Because there's probably no tougher tournament all year round than the U.S. Open. The conditions. 
the mental part of the game, all that sort of stuff, it seems like that brought out the best in you. Well, I've, I've always had a, I had a very upright swing, and, you know, and the, I always took the approach going into the U.S. Open. The rough's always been. I mean, the rough back, the, the rough on the tour now and the, game, the way the game's changed, the rough, the, the fairways are 60 yards wide. When we played back in the day, we always had rough. Uh, Hartford, Connecticut, oh, you know, uh, Greensboro, up in Greensboro, some of the toughest rough. You couldn't move the ball 80 yards out of And I always took the approach in the U.S. Open that everybody's going to be driving in the road in the in the rough, and everybody needs to be the best from 80 yards in because we're all going to be hacking it out of the rough, getting it up there. So basically at that time, my wedge game and my putty was all those weeks. And that's what you need in the U.S. Open. You, you need a you need to be, you need you know it's all about adversity. You better grind it out. There's no you know there's no twenty two under, twenty one under. You know if you hunt, if you hung around par back then that something good was going to be happening to you at the end of the week. And I think I just I was grinding. I was grinding. And Neil, you played full time on the PGA Tour from 1990 to 2005, and you go back through Q School in 2009. I know you had some shoulder issues at times during your career, but is that why you ended up going back to Q school in 09? Well, I, you know, also, you know, after that many years, I, I, I had a, I had a shoulder injury. I had a life on my shoulder, the size of your fist, and I needed to get that removed. I had three ruptured discs in my neck and probably didn't really know what was wrong with me. I had so many injuries going on, but like I said, I was a grinder. I was tough. I just, I was going to, you know, whatever it took, I was going to do. And when I went back to tour school, yeah, I, I got through um, and went back out. And, uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy, I'm a, I'm a golfer, man. I, I play golf for I play for the love of the game. That, I mean, that's what I do. I, I, I play golf. That's all I've ever done. And so when I got through and went back out, you know, I, I played all right. And, and then I actually made a mistake. Um, I, uh, I had a... I had a shoulder surgery, and I thought I was going to go back out and be fully exempt from what I understood. And they changed the rules a little bit, and I went back out. It was not fully exempt. I was in the top. I, I think I finished like fourth at tour school. So I was going to get into, you know, pretty good tournaments early in the year. Well, I went and had surgery where I should have probably played the first four tournaments and then had surgery because I moved down the list. So then I was out for about a two or three years with just, you know, I was letting myself heal up. And then when I got 48, I'm like, I got to go back or I'm never going to go back. And I went back and rehabbed on the web.com a few times, and you know, and I feel like today I played better than I played back in my prime. The, the ball goes further. Um, Chris, when I was a rookie on the tour, one day we went out at the same time. He led driving distance at 284. Dan Poe was like 282. And I was 279 and was third in driving distance. And when I was 51 years old, I played enough tournaments on the big tour for them to keep staff. I hit 301 and was 62nd. Wow. So that goes to show you it's the equipment. It's, I'm not getting stronger over 20 years. But I hit the, I hit the ball 20, I hit the ball 20, 27, 23, 27 yards further at 51 than I did in my prime. So that's wow. golf. That's, that's so, golf. 
Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that because, to your point, I saw at the Shaw Charity Classic out on the Champions Tour earlier this year, you played out there, you had a 349-yard drive. So distance isn't an issue for you. I'm surprised we're not seeing you out there all the time. When are we going to get to see you more on the Champions Tour? I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I, 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 I couldn't get through tour school, but two years I shot 15 under one year and missed by one. And one year I shot 14 under and missed by one. They only take five out of tour school. But, you know, I, I've always been an advocate. You know, I played 20 years on the tour and have no status when I turned 50 on the Champions Tour. I had status on the Corn Ferry Tour and didn't have any on the Champions Tour. And I'm like, wow. not right. But yeah, it's uh, and I had and I had limited status on the regular tour. But I, I, I'm trying. I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to Monday qualify some. Um, and I, I still like feel still like I can play. But you know, when you get out there, you got to do a Stephen offer. You got to get hot. Yeah, he went on a stretch. He's probably the best player in the world for about about six months last year. But uh, I'm trying, and I'm gonna go qualify. Uh, some and I, I'm gonna play in the SAS Championship up in uh, Cherry, my my home tournament in uh, the end of October. But I want to play out there. But it, it takes 23 million in career earnings to get on the Champions Tour. 23 million. <laughs> so it's kind of a it's kind of a close shot unless you you know you, you had to have a great career to get out of there. Five wins and 23 million. And I didn't do that. I just had 360 cuts. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is what it is, but you know sometimes you gotta help yourself. I'm playing better. I've been struggling with my putter a little bit, but it's coming around. I'm I'm working at it. Um, I, I feel like I still got some good years in me. I'm turning sixty next week, but I still feel like I can go out and compete. I'm hitting the ball good as I've, I've ever hit the ball, and I think actually the equipment's helped me. But you know I'm just not putting like I used to. But who does? Nobody stays hot forever. <laughs> right. Neil, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with the things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Well, actually, I'm, I'm not on social media much. I'm getting ready to uh, launch my website, and uh, I'm coming up with that. I'm waiting for the heat to cool down, and I'm I uh, can give uh, i going to give some lessons, and I'm going to try to play the tour some. And, uh, and actually, I'd like to say hello to my wife and kids. I got a Great support system, my wife Ashley and I, I have a 11 year old and an 8 year old, two girls, and they're probably the greatest thing. No, not probably. They are definitely the greatest thing that's ever happened. And we wanted to do it that way. When my career slowed down a little bit, that was the time for us to have children, and they're a big part of my life, and, and they really support me, and they're excited to see me play. Well, Neil, I'm excited to see you play again soon, too. I hope uh, we get the privilege of of watching you out on the Champions Tour and then getting to have you back on the show again. A lot more to talk about about your playing career, but you've made this segment a lot of fun. I hope we get to catch up with you soon. Anytime, Chris. If you ever need anything, need any help, you just give old Neil Lancaster a call. I'll be here, buddy. I appreciate you, Neil. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Happy birthday a week early. Look forward to catching up soon. Thank you, sir. See you, Neil. That is the great Neil Lancaster, folks. You want to talk about a great player that was uh, doing some great things out on the tour back in the 90s. Boy, you, you talk about Neil Lancaster. 29 twice? Almost shot a 28 at a U.S. Open? Are you kidding me? That never happened, obviously. 
you know, sets, sets a, a course record 65 at Shinnecock and then goes out and also shoots 29 and he does a back-to-back year. Never happened in the history of the game. May never happen again, particularly at a U.S. Open. And then a guy that was right there, you know, in those Opens, finishing fourth one time, and then uh, he got he got a win at the Byron Nelson. And then you know, one of the things we didn't discuss just a couple of years ago, 2018, at the Barbasol Championship, at the age of 56, he's right in the thick of things. I mean, he shot uh, opening round 69 in the first and then the second round at 56 years old playing with the young kids. I think this guy's got a lot of game left, and I'm very much excited to see how that plays out for him, hopefully, like I say, real soon. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Julie Inkster, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club. By moving the heavy weight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to adelgolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now next on the tee with me is seven-time major champion Julie Inkster. Let me give you some background on Julie. She's from Santa Cruz, California. Played her college golf at San Jose State, where she was a three-time All-American from 1979 to 1982. During her college career, she won a remarkable 17 times. In 1982, she was named the San Jose State Athlete of the Year, and she also won the Broderick Award for being the women's number one college golfer in the country. Julie is a member of the San Jose State Sports Hall of Fame. She became only the second player in history to capture three straight U.S. Women's Amateur Championships. She did so from 1980 to 1982. She turned pro in 1983 and captured her first LPGA title that year at the Safeco Classic. She'd win there again in 1988. She was named the Rookie of the Year in 1983. 1984 was her first full season out on the LPGA Tour, and she would win two majors that season. She'd go on to win 31 times on the LPGA Tour, including seven majors. She has 45 total professional wins and 149 career top tens. She was named the 1999 Female Player of the Year by the Golf Writers Association. In 2000, she won the ESPY Award for Outstanding Women's Golf Performer of the Year after having won the Women's PGA and U.S. Opens. She was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2000 as well. She played on nine Solheim Cup teams. In 2011, she became the oldest player and first playing assistant captain in Solheim Cup history. 
She's been the U.S. team captain three times, winning two of those. She's won four times so far out on the Legends Tour. She's become a wonderful broadcaster, commentating for the Golf Channel and Fox Sports, and I am thrilled she is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, thanks for having me. Can't um, I've heard so much about your podcast and your show, and I'm just uh, happy to be aboard. Well, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for being here. So, Julius, as I read off all of those incredible things that you have achieved so far over the course of your career, and, and there's only a few women out in the game that have achieved as many majors and wins and that sort of thing. I mean, you should be on the Mount Rushmore of the LPGA Tour. Do you ever give yourself an opportunity just to sort of sit back in your quiet moments and, and kind of soak it all in and think, man, that's a heck of a career? Yeah, especially, you know, just kind of falling into golf. Um, you know, I didn't really start till I was 15 and uh, got a job working at the golf course, uh, picking up the range and parking carts and just uh, got some clubs from the back room and started started playing. And I just got fell in love with the game. Um, and I still am in love with the game. Uh, you know, I've had a, a long career and um, I think, in order to have a career like that, you got to have a passion for the game, and I, I definitely have a passion for the game. It's you know, it's given me way more than I've given that, given it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm very happy with my career. I mean, I, I never dreamed of being a professional golfer, and, and then to, to have a career like I have and have a family and and stuff, it's it's been an amazing ride. And Julie, to your point. Like, I read that, you know, you ran track, you were on the swim team, you played softball, basketball, tennis. How did te- how did golf find its it sort of way in for that passion to, to start to bloom when you had all those other things that you were such a great, well-rounded athlete doing as a kid? Well, I think they call that a jock. But, yes, I was definitely a jock. I had two older brothers, and they were very athletic. Um, my dad played um, professional baseball for three years. Um, in the Cincinnati Reds organization, and we were just a sports family, and so I kind of followed my brothers around, and then when I got a job at the golf course, it really gave me something to do that they weren't interested in. It's kind of my own shtick, and I just, uh, I didn't mind being by myself. I um, I thought it was very peaceful-like, uh, so I, I just, uh, I got, you know, a bunch of clubs in the back room, none of a match, but and I just uh, I started playing. There was a guy there at the club named Grant Rogers. He was the, like kind of gave me some lessons, and um, and then you know we just we just played. We didn't um, stand on the range and beat balls. We just uh, learned how to shape shots and hit shots. And um, and I always had a good work ethic. Um, I probably one of the rare people that liked to practice. Um, so it was never work for me. Julie, I read that you played on the boys' high school team at Harbor High, and you and the team won some local tournaments. What was it like for you being out there playing on the boys' team? Well, it was a win-win. I mean, I was the only girl in the whole um, community right there that played on the golf team. Um, I played uh, on the JV team my sophomore year, um, and then I actually uh, made varsity my junior and senior year and played pretty well. Um, the, the other visiting teams really didn't like to compete against the girl, and that kind of 
inspired me to to, to play hard and, and to uh, try to show them that girls can play golf too. But uh, really, it was a guy named Floyd Slider. He um, was the golf coach, and for some reason, he found out that I was starting to play golf, and he called my parents and um, asked them if, if do you think Julie would be interested in going out for the golf team? And it was during basketball season, which was really my first love. Um, but um, basketball practices were always in the evening, so I could do both. So I uh, I, I did both, and and um, you know ba- uh, basketball is still my uh, still a great love of mine. But uh, golf really took over, and I was able to get a partial scholarship my freshman year at San Jose State, made All American, and and then kind of took off from there. Yeah, Julie, talk about your time at San Jose State and teaming with Patty Sheehan. You won 17 tournaments during your time there. She won five times. I mean, the other players must have known they weren't even playing for second place. They were playing for third when your team bus pulled up and you guys opened the door and walked out. You know, San Jose State was really the best thing that ever happened to me, uh, you know, because I I really didn't have any um, competition. I didn't play in a lot of tournaments. You know, the first time I ever played out of the state was I qualified for the U.S. Open uh, at um, at 18 at Indianapolis Country Club, and uh, you know that that kind of spurred me to to think that um, you know I I would like to play golf in college and be a great collegiate player. But um, you know we we had a great coach in a, uh, named Mark Gale who really didn't know much about golf he was a retired colonel air force um colonel in the air force and but he was an amazing fundraiser and we got to play in all the best tournaments and compete against the best uh collegiate amateurs players um in the country and that really you know helped my game to really feel like where i needed to go and what i needed to do to to improve and um, I was dating my husband at the time, uh, and he was in Santa Cruz, and so it was just a really good fit for me. San Jose State was a great um, college, uh, women's college program, and I was 35 minutes from home, and so um, you know I could go back and forth. So it was a really great spot for me to really improve my game and and play against the best collegiate players. And Julie, earlier this year, San Jose State's women's golf team beat top-seeded Stanford at the Julie Inkster Spartan Invitational. What's it like having a tournament named in your honor? Didn't have your alma mater win it. <laughs> it was great. You know, Stanford is, is by far, uh, you know, the number one ranked uh, school in the country. But San Jose State had a great uh, team last year, and I think they ended up fifth. But, uh, you know, I got a lot of admiration for Stanford and San Jose State. Uh, you know, they go head-to-head a lot, and Stanford usually beats up on us. But uh, it was great for them to come out on top and um, maybe give them a little bit of satisfaction of beating uh, Stanford for once. Julie, I want to fast-forward all the way to 1999 because you came into the U.S. Open that year. You're 38 years old. You're searching for your first U.S. Open title. And not only did you get it, you set the record for the lowest total to par, finishing 16 under. You win that going away. How satisfying a week was that for you? Well, being you know being an American, you always want to win your national 
championship. And I always loved USGA events. I mean, I grew up at a golf course uh, in Santa Cruz called Pasatiempo, which is a really tough golf course. And uh, very U.S. open light, a lot of undulation. It's, and it's an old Alistair McKenzie golf course, kind of a hidden gem. So I always kind of played USGA events well, you know, winning three U.S. amateurs. But I just could never figure out the U.S. Open. I think I just wanted it too much. And I was having a really good year coming in uh, to the U.S. Open in Jackson, Mississippi at Old Waverly. And I remember driving in. And a lot of things, I can't remember a lot of things, but for some reason I remember this. I said, you know what, if you're ever going to win a U.S. Open, this is the time to do it. You're playing well. you got no excuses. you just got to go out and do it. And, you know, I was hitting the ball very well that week. I gave myself a lot of chances, made some putts, and I uh, just got on a great roll. And, Julie, I always like to kind of get inside the minds of great players and the last hole of that tournament, you had a great drive right down the middle of the fairway. You've got a five-stroke lead going into that, I believe, into that you know final hole. You you've got a your last shot left. It's the the green is right behind a pond. You've got room to the right if you needed to lay up or or to bail out to the right. But instead, you go you take that aim, and the ball lands a couple of feet from the hole and and releases a little bit. Take me through the mind of that shot. Instead of, you know, conservative, play it safe, I could I could double bogey here, still win, you go right for it. Talk about that. Well, I mean, I had so much confidence in my irons that week. I hit my irons so well. Um, and if if you know my background at all, I'm, I'm not one to lay up. Um, I always play aggressive. It's probably cost me a few tournaments, but uh, I, I, it's kind of like a little challenge for me. If that pin's tucked back there, or the whole occasion's tucked back there, I know I can get that little white golf ball, just snuggle it right up there. So, um, I always played aggressive. Um, and, you know, I think when you're, you're feeling it and you got a five shot lead, um, you know, I have to say it never crossed my mind that I was going to hit it in the water. Um, you know, it crossed my mind that I was just trying to make birdie. So uh, I think that's the kind of the mindset you have to have. And Julie, as you're after you hit that shot and you're walking up the fairway, the camera's on you, and you look into the camera and you say to your kids, "You know, mommy's going to bring home a trophy, a really big trophy." Talk about yeah. you know, kind of being able to just sort of you know relax and you know let your hair down, if you will, and, and be able to have that. Nice little comment for your kids as you're strolling up the last hole of the U.S. Open. Yeah, they were nine and five at the time. And, and um, you know, it, it was a week I went by myself just so I could kind of focus on, um, you know, golf that week. And uh, Brian, my husband, flew in on Sunday uh, for the for the final round. But, uh, you know, I, it was just kind of a monkey off my back. I mean, at 30, I mean who wins an Open at 39? I mean, it's, it's really rare to do that. Um, so, you know, I never really, I never really doubted myself that I wouldn't win one, but my, let's just say my window was shutting uh, very uh, fast. And to be able to win it at 39 and, and share it with my family and my kids knew what I did. It's, you know, different from their friend's mom's work, but, you know, they knew I played golf and, 
my living and that's how I made my money. And uh, they knew I had a passion for it and to be able to show them, you know, hard work and persistence. Um, sometimes it just doesn't happen right away, but if you stick to it, maybe good things happen. Julie, you captained three Solheim Cup teams, and you were the winning captain in two of those. Where do those two wins rank for you amongst all the other great achievements that you've had so far? I think being the Solheim Cup captain is, uh, well, I, I think winning the Bobby Jones Award this year was probably the icing on the cake. Um, you know, it's not only just for your record in golf, but for, you know, how you handled yourself during your career and how you give back to um, golf. And I think that was probably, you know, my highlight of my career. But probably right below it is being a captain for um, a Solheim Cup team. You know, you know you, you know who you are as a player, and, but you just don't know how or who you're going to be as a leader. And, um, you know, I have a huge passion for, for the Solheim Cup, um, for America. And you know, I wanted to do it the right way. Um, and it was just great to see how my team really responded and really played hard for me. Um, you know, you, 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 you can't put a trophy or price tag on the dinners and, and the camaraderie. And In that first year that you captained the team, 2015, you guys start the final round down 10-6. Thanks to some shenanigans that uh, finished up the matches from the previous day, but talk about what it was like and how, you know, all the things that unfolded that finished up with the four ball event and the drama that, that led into the singles matches and ultimately an unbelievable comeback victory for the U S team. Yeah. I mean, it was an unfortunate thing because, you know, you never want a you know, confrontation to ruin the spirit of the game. Um, I don't think that's how it should be played, but we did have a little bit of a uh, rules controversy that um, I wasn't really um, happy about and my team wasn't happy about, and it happens to be that the Europe European team wasn't too happy about it either. But, um, you know, we had to come out early on Sunday and finish those couple matches, and, you know, we, <laughs> yeah, we, were, we were down. We were way down. But... Um, I saw a, a little fire in my team, fire in my in their eyes that, you know, we're going to do this. And I loved our matchup, the way we, we matched up uh, individually in the single matches. Uh, and our first few, you know, got the points and, and the way we kind of spread it around, and, you know, kind of the unsung hero was Jarena Pillar, um, you know, making that putt on 17 uh, or 18 excuse me, to uh, really uh, push us because if she misses that, then we lose the cup. But, uh, yeah, it was a great celebration that night. Um, it was unbelievable. And then we followed that up by going to Oktoberfest. So I'm not sure I still have recovered from that. <laughs> Julie, just a couple more before I let you go. You created the Julie Inkster Senior Award for players so they won't turn pro until they complete their college degree. Talk about why that's so important to you. Well, the way the, the LPGA qualifying is structured, that if you're a uh, in college, you can go to the LPGA qualifying school as an amateur, and if you don't get your card, you can go back. 
but if you get your card, um, we were seeing a lot of seniors leaving their team in the, in the fall of their last year and uh, leaving their teammates and their college and their coach kind of hanging uh, because they weren't able to redo that scholarship. So I want to develop a award that would maybe keep these kids for that extra semester to um, to finish their contract with their school and their teammates. And Workday has been great. Uh, they have helped me um, establish this award. And Workday gives them $50,000 to start their LPGA career. They get two exemptions um, into LPGA tournaments. They get a couple days with me and mentorship. Um, you know, we go out and play golf and, and then, um, you know, I just, um, I'm really hands-on. So my first two previous winners, I, I talked to them a lot. And it happens this year, uh, Natasha Andreun from San Jose State won the award. So, um, you know, the first two, one was from Furman, one was from Duke, and, and now we have a Spartan. So it's really been a great, um, great for me to mentor these kids and to get them started on their career. But it's also been great for the schools because it keeps them in their, in the school for another semester. Golf's going to always be there, but to be able to finish and, and have a chance at a national championship with your team, you only get that four years of your life. So um, so it was, big, it was something I wanted to do, and Workday really helped me sponsor it. Julie, I've had the privilege of having Tom Pertzer on the show several times. He's become a wonderful friend, and you guys were paired together and you won the mixed team championship back in 1986. Tom's named one of his daughters in your honor. Talk about winning that mixed team championship with Tom and your relationship with he and the family. Please don't tell him I didn't say that was the greatest accomplishment of my career because <laughs> he's going to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, no, Tom and I, it was, um, yeah. So Tom's just a little bit older than I am, and his agent, it was, we had a tournament called the J.C. Penny Classic, which they need to bring back, um, where a PGA pro and an LPGA player um, play four days. You play an alternate shot, a best ball, uh, and Tom uh, called me and asked me if I'd play with him. And I knew Tom, I knew of Tom Perker, uh, but I didn't really know him. And uh, we just developed the greatest friendship. We, I think we played for 12, 12 years straight. Um, and we did finally win it uh, one year. But uh, he's become one of my best friends ever. And, you know, Tom has just got the biggest heart in the world. He can't make a decision, but, he could, but he's got a great heart. He, he <laughs> would come out to me. He'd come out and say, so we're the red vest or the blue vest. I go, Tom, let's go red today. All right, red. Okay, hit the five iron or the little six. Tom, hit the big six, you know. So, um, <laughs> but we, we, have, we have a great relationship. Um, you know, we see each other at least once or twice a year. Um, I got to meet all his kids uh, for his uh, 70th birthday uh, uh, last uh, in the spring or last, last, last winter. And uh, so it's, it's, um, it's been a great ride, and and it's a friendship you treasure. And I I, you know, I can not talk to him for a couple you know months, and I just pick up right where we left off. So to me, that's a, a golden friendship. 
Have you forgiven him for missing that two-foot putt on 18 that would have broken the scoring record in the mixed team championship? So, you know, that is so Tom Percher. He doesn't talk about us winning and all the shots and all the places I put him in that he was hitting shots out of and getting them on the green. He he remembers that one putt. I mean, I basically gave it to him, but uh, they told him to putt it, so he putt it. <laughs> but you know what? I, I – ta- I tapped in that two-incher to say, I think he wanted to give me the glory. <laughs> no doubt. Julie, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Well, I'm on um, Instagram at Julie Inkster. Um, I'm starting my um, Julie Inkster Foundation, a Julie Inkster Award. Uh, so uh, go there and, and give me a few hits. Well, Julie, it's been a huge thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I hope we get the privilege of having you come back and share more of your stories and inspirations with us. You're fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Okay. Take care, Julie. Bye-bye. That is the great Julie Inkster, folks. You want to talk about one of the greatest players in the history of the game. You just heard from her. I mean, seven major championships. She's sixth all-time in majors on the LPGA Tour. She won 31 times. She's won everything that you could possibly win. She's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. She's been the player of the year. She's won three amateur titles. I mean, you look at everything that that Julia has achieved over the course of her playing career, it just doesn't get much better. She's And, and she's a wonderful human being on top of that. So I, I'm completely honored that she was a part of the show tonight, and I hope we get the privilege of having her back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Chris Finn, I want to remind you about a couple of more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Shrixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Shrixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Shrixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Shrixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Shrixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Shrixon. Check them out online at Shrixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the Valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear, Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Par for Success founder Chris Finn. Par for Success is a golf fitness and physical therapy company located up in Morrisville, North Carolina. They've got a great facility up there, folks. They can help you with improving your golf performance, and if something hurts when you play, they can help alleviate that as well. Chris is a licensed physical therapist a certified strength and conditioning specialist, 
He is also Titleist Performance Institute certified and a certified nutrition coach. He's grown par for success from being a physical therapy business that he did out of the back of his car to becoming a tremendously successful business, one that Goldman Sachs has recognized as a small business poised for growth. And I'm excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Excited to be back with you. How you doing tonight? I'm fantastic, Chris. Catch us up, my friend. It's It's been a minute since we got to have you here. Catch us up with what's uh, going on with you guys. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a lot going on. We're uh, we're actually in the midst. We're we're building a state of the art uh, brand new facility that'll be two three times the size of what we got right now. And um, we've done a ton. I've been doing a ton of research with uh, ground reaction forces. So we have a bunch of uh, research grade force plates and uh, really just you know since the last time I was on, it's just been uh, I joke with everybody you know that we that we work with and everyone you know, on our team. It's it's kind of been just like a constant flow of gasoline on a fire. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and and even the the, the next studies and it, everything we look at just continues to build on um, everything that we've been able to, you know that we had done in the past. So it's it's just been, it's been a wild ride. Our had a uh, obviously we started with a local business um, with COVID. It, it definitely was a bit of a forcing function where people were looking for for ways to you know continue to work on their bodies. Obviously, golf did nothing but get bigger. Where people had a lot of time working remotely and whatnot. And, um, and so it really, you know, the virtual side of our business, that being able to connect with golfers at this point, uh, pretty much on most continents <laughs> and helping them, you know, get the right information about what they need to do to, you know, to play the game longer, you know, to, you know, whether it's getting out of pain, hit the ball further, um, just being more consistent. It's been, uh, it's been a, a wild couple of, couple of years here. So, uh, I'm excited to be back with you and, and chat, you know, about you know, a number of different things. So Chris, you talked about studies. You know, in our game now, everything's about distance. It's about club head speed. Yep. Talk about what overspeed training is and the studies that you guys have done with respect to that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, overspeed has definitely gotten, um, you know, there's a lot of you know, speed training devices and systems out there. And uh, I think overspeed training is definitely one of the more popular mainstream ones where, you know, you, you'll see, you know, people, you see a lot of guys on tour, different sticks and you know, different weighted sticks and swinging them faster. And um, and basically, you know, when we're looking at gaining speed, the the way I always break it down for people is there's, there's kind of, there's four kind of areas. One, you can obviously get more technically efficient. Um, you know, two, you can get the right equipment. That often helps. Um, three, you can, you know, get more mobile, you know, get more mobile and be able to get point A to point B. And then the fourth quadrant is the physical side of, of power and speed. And that's where kind of overspeed training really fits and it's it, the analogy i always use is it's kind of like we've all driven the the, the golf cart at a, a local muni course that you know slows down when it goes down the hill right like defies yeah. gravity like that should go faster that, that's because there's a governor on it and as golfers we all have governors on our body our brains will put this governor where you know, say you're swinging 95 miles an hour and your body says hey if you cross 100 you're going to break it'll apply kind of a, in a sense that little downhill break where it's going to kind of almost force you to sit at that mid 90s level. So what overspeed training does, it's kind of like taking the governor off that golf cart and then all of a sudden it unlocks, you know, more speed. Um, so there, when we talk about gaining speed, overspeed training could be, you know, I would call it the Holy grail for a lot, a number of golfers um, to access new, you know, speed immediately. 
Um, it does come with a cautionary tale, unfortunately, from what we've seen in all the research we've done. You know, we've, at this point, we're over, we're getting close to 6,000 golfers that we've kind of run through the studies. And, and really what we're seeing is there's kind of three profiles of golfers, Chris. And if you're in the one profile, which we call a, like a, a more RPM under the hood golfer, basically a golfer who's just raring to go, they have great mobility, they can rotate where they need to, they're really strong, meaning they can support the speed that they currently have and even a little bit more. Those are the golfers where overspeed training is like, holy cow, it's like, it's like, it's like an explosion. We had one guy who was, uh, he was probably mid thirties. He was six, seven. He played division one basketball. He jumped 40 inches. He could throw up one of the, uh, do some med ball testing and whatnot to see kind of what people call for power elements are. Um, these are all tests people can do at home too, which is the cool part. Um, but he threw that ball like 50 feet. <laughs> like his numbers were out, like out of this world. He's super mobile. He's six, seven. He's 32. Any guesses how fast he came in swinging? 120. <laughs> That's what you would think, right? He came in swinging 101 miles an hour, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that's when you look at a guy like that, overspeed training, you know, what we've done in a lot of studies, he, he fits the profile where overspeed training and basically taking lighter clubs than your, uh, you know, than your driver and, and swinging them really fast. There's, you know, certain protocols that you do. And, um, you know, basically in 10 minutes, we got him from 101-ish, I think it was one, somewhere to 101, 103, up to 127, right? Wow. So it was, and it, it was incredible. But, you know, the cautionary tailor that I said when everyone hears that, like, oh, my gosh. You know, they Google overspeed, and they, they got it ordered to ship in their cart, right? <laughs> get, get, get overnight <laughs> delivery. <laughs> the, the, the one cautionary tale, unfortunately, is 95% of golfers, particularly over the age of, you know, 40, don't fit that profile. We actually will fit the we call the ticking time bomb grouping, which is you know we don't pass we don't have mobility in one of the four major rotary centers, and if that's the case, and then we try to go really fast, the chances of injury are incredibly high. Uh, basically, we did a study where we looked at um, probably close to a hundred golfers who got hurt doing overspeed training, and every single one of them failed at least one of the main four rotary centers. Um, so unfortunately. While overspeed training can be the holy grail, most golfers, unless they've been working on their bodies and you know and know the right areas to train, are actually the complete wrong people to utilize it initially. Uh, now, you do the right mobility training, you know, three, four weeks, you know, maybe eight weeks in worst case scenarios. All of a sudden, you can pass the mobility test. Now you've done the prerequisite. Well, now now overspeed training can be incredibly valuable. So it's just it's a really cool tool that we can use of basically getting your brain to remove the governor from you so you can actually go really fast. It's an immediate access to speed, but used in the wrong situation with the wrong person, it actually can get a non-desirable impact of you know, injury or you know something along those lines. So uh, use with caution to everyone listening. Yeah. So to that end, Kristen, and you're right, because we become you know, overly enthusiastic, like, wow, I can jump. I can be just like that guy. I can get 26 yeah. miles an hour in, in five minutes. And now all of a sudden yep. I'm going to be driving the ball 300 yards. How do you, how do you, I, I'm assuming you, you sort of got to put the governor on some of us, right? So that we mm -hmm. don't go out too fast and, and end up with back injuries or leg injuries and that sort of thing. How do, how do you temper people down from, Wanting, I don't want to. I don't want to go from A to B. I, I, I want to, you know, go right to Z. How do you keep us yeah. from actually doing that damage to ourselves? 
Yeah. So uh, you know, one nice thing is the br- the brain is the the body is pretty good at generally um, you know trying to protect us as much as possible. The group of golfers who you're talking about are, are single digit golfers. So those are guys. Remember we started talking about you can kind of gain speed in four different you know called four quadrants of speed. You got the you know, the, the one piece of the pie of speed is kind of the physical where we've been talking and others, the, the mobility. The other two are technique and equipment. And so really, if like good players, people who maybe played collegially or, you know, been scratched for a while, technique and equipment is generally optimized. And, and we we'll actually see a lot of golfers who create club head speed faster than what their body is able to support physically. Uh, we have a home assessment that we give everybody. It's free. And anybody listening, we can talk about that later. But uh, it's basically it's a, it's a, in the assessment you can figure out, you know, are you too fast, quote unquote, for what your body can handle or not, um, or are you in a good position to go after it? But it's using that assessment, Chris, is really where where we kind of I would call it the litmus test to really kind of helping people very clearly, you know, say, hey, did you pass all the four mobility tests? If you didn't, do not pass go. <laughs> We're going to take a couple of weeks. We're going to make sure we pass these tests. And then we're going to look at, okay, now you're mobile. Now are your strength and power numbers at a point where you can support more speed than you currently have? And so you kind of have to check those two boxes. Number one, can you rotate? Number two, do you have enough strength and speed to safely add more? In which case, you know, green light, let's go. We're going to do, you know, there's, you know, whether it's overspeed training, whether it's, um, you know, power, you know, golf-specific power training, whatever, you know, ends up being discovered as kind of the main avenue that you need to go. Then we go down that road. But so really the number one way that we keep people or try to keep people from trying to skip, you know, B through, you know, Y is is basically kind of really being real with them saying, hey, do you end the, in the educational piece of saying, hey, do this test, your hips cramping and you're like can't move more than 10 degrees. That's not good. That's a red flag. Does that make sense to you? Um, you know, and so it's really kind of being the giving people the education, allowing them to go through those tests at home. And, and the cool thing is you, you can, you know, golfers can retest themselves. You know, they're, they're doing some stuff, they're working, you know, two weeks later, you know, retest. Did you get any better? Great, you're better. Let's move on to the next level. So really the biggest thing is a lot of education. And I'm going to be honest with you, Chris. As you know, most golfers, they don't always listen. <laughs> until they <laughs> until they show up with their back or wrist or elbow hurting. And then they say, yeah, and then you go, you go, hey, remember when we talked about that? And they go, <laughs> no, I don't remember that at all. I don't talk about it. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> right. So, Chris, talk about overspeed training and, and how overspeed training compares to just sort of regular traditional strength and conditioning training. How are those two things either alike or very different? Yeah, a great question, Chris. So, and this is a super common question a lot of golfers have. And, um you know, I think a lot of golfers will mistake them for being interchangeable, if that makes sense. So someone say, oh, I'm going to do my golf workout, and I'm going to get stronger for golf. Oh, cool. What are you doing? They go, oh, I'm doing overspeed training, right? So an overspeed training, just for everyone listening, uh, basically what it consists of is if you have – there's a couple different ways to do it. The most effective way we have found with all the research we've done is basically taking a club about 5% lighter than your driver. Um, you know, if you're listed, probably like a 5-wood. Um, you know, but if you're a club geek and you can weigh your club, you know, 5% is the exact actual measurement that we found. Uh, and then basically what you do is you're going to swing it as hard as you can to your dominant side. So, you know, if you're right-handed swinging towards your left, if you're left-handed swinging towards your right, swing as hard as you can three times, you know, toward the dominant, you know, towards your strong side, swinging three times as hard as you can 
uh, towards your uh, towards your trail side. Each of those three rounds, you're doing five swing beats. So in total, you got you know basically three sets of you know five left, five right. You'd rest five left, five right for a rest. So 30 total swings. So basically, doing that three times a week as hard as you can. So you're obviously that club is going to be going faster than how you would swing it when you'd normally be playing. Doing that two to three times a week. The key is you take about a two-minute break in between each of those sets of ten swings. You know, five left, five right. Uh, that in it. So that that's what overspeed training that we found has the you know most impactful uh, improvement in terms of swing club speed improvement. So that is what we. It's actually called nervous system training. So it's getting your brain to take the governor off and allow your body to go faster. So that is very different than what you would like if you go to the gym and you're lifting weights or you're doing jump training or you know, plyometrics or anything along those lines, you know, lifting weights is more building the muscular strength up to support the nervous system moving faster. So I would say when you go to the gym, I'd use the analogy of you're, you're basically building your, your brakes up. But when you do your overspeed training, you're trying to put more cylinders into the engine. <laughs> so where a lot of golfers get in trouble is they want a 12-cylinder engine, but they are totally cool having the rusted old, Toyota Corolla brake <laughs> brake pass. <laughs> until they're bad, until they crash the car because the brakes don't work, and then they say, "Oh, now I get why I need to get stronger." Um, so that, so that, that's how I would describe kind of just visually for everyone listening is overspeed training is basically trying to get as fast as you can with what you got. Maybe if you can find another cylinder or two there, the strength conditioning or like the weightlifting, um, you know, and this doesn't need to be. What we found in our research is if you can do 90 minutes a week, you know, spread it out 90 minutes over the course of a week, you can see significant gains. Um, that's really kind of building the, the braking system and, and the, the support system so that you don't get hurt and so that you can actually utilize safely what the actual over, you know, what the overspeed training uh, is designed to do and when it can be beneficial for you. So if we're, Working out and building our muscle over 90 minutes over the course of a week, how often should we be doing overspeed training? So that, so that was one of the big interesting findings we found, Chris, is a lot of, a lot of the, I guess what I would call mainstream companies out there doing a lot of the, you know, selling speed training systems and whatnot. They were, they were recommending like up to a hundred swings in a session and, you know, three to five times a week, like you could do it multiple, like, like way too much. Um, so the all the ideal that we found in all of our research, we tested all of our the golfers in the studies only did it twice a week. And that you always have at least 24 hours in between sessions. Um, but if you're only doing it twice a week, ideally, if you can have two to three days in between, that gives your, your nervous system the most chance to recover. So you're 100% fresh, so you can go 100% in each of those training sessions. Um, so it's kind of crazy for people to think of it. Of you know, I only got to swing 30 times as hard as I can twice a week. <laughs> that's, that's what the research found. We compared doing that versus doing a hundred swings, you know, three, you know, more than that, three times, four times a week. The, you know, the there there is a sweet there is a point of diminishing return. Um, it, it would kind of be like telling a you know Shane Bolt or a hundred meter championship, hundred meter sprinter to go go run. 100 100 meter sprints like five times a week like that's silly like that nobody trains like that <laughs> um so that's, that's kind of what we were telling our golfers to do um so you know looking at the science and physiology of it all um that's where the the fun thing we find is the more research we do we find 
golfers can get much more focused on the stuff they actually need themselves specifically, and they can actually do less of it, which I tend to meet fewer gym rats that are golfers than, than not. So most golfers don't mind <laughs> having to spend less time in the gym, more time on the golf course. <laughs> right. Chris, you guys also did a study on eccentric flywheel training. Talk about what that is. Yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely not mainstream. That's definitely one thing it is. <laughs> so what it is is um, the reason we got to that, this is one of the cool studies. Uh, we did a two-year study looking. This is uh, We probably mentioned this in great detail last time we chatted, but you know, the gist of it was we looked at adult golfers and we looked at um, – you know, kids, and we looked at different. There's two main types of training. One is if you think of traditional tra- weight training, if you if you have a let's take a squat for example, and you you squat down, that lowering part is called the eccentric motion. That'd be the equivalent of kind of the backswing in the golf swing. Kind of muscles are stretching, right? Then there's a, a pause at the bottom of the squat, similar to the transition point in the golf swing. That's the isometric phase. And then the final phase is or the third phase of movement, concentric, and that would be the standing up of the squat or the downswing. That's when everything kind of shortens and explodes and you exert all, all the force. So what we found was that adult golfers, when we put them in a, in a type of program which focused a lot on the eccentric phase of training, the specific in the study was called triphasic training, they saw, if we looked at the average gain, club head speed gains that we saw in adult golfers, they saw a 60% improvement on top of that average gain. So it was wow. a massive improvement when we trained them that way. Um, so put it in raw numbers for people. It was like an extra five yards in in three months uh, by training differently. So putting the same amount of work, just doing it a little bit differently, saw significant uh, improvements. So so then what we did off of that is we said there's a type of uh, – I'm sure everybody's familiar with like a cable machine. You know, people will do chop exercises, rotary exercise, rotational exercises on them. When you look at those, let's say you put like the – you change, adjust the weight to the, you know, I don't know, 30 pounds and you pull it out, you have 30 pounds resistance. When you go back, there's still that same 30 pounds, right? Gravity is equal the whole time. What a flywheel machine is, um, and especially with, you know, the pandemic, and you can buy these for your home gyms and put them in. They're very, very affordable and very, when I tell you that the results, people will understand why I'm advocating for them. Basically, when you pull out, let's say you, you pull out, you know, instead of having the, uh, you know, adjusting the weight on the machine and you have 30 pounds the whole way, it's a wheel, and basically, as you pull the, you know, the the, uh, the pulley, the wheel it spins the wheel, um, and so it, the harder you pull, the faster the wheel spins. So the harder you pull out, the caveat is now that wheel has to spin back the other way to to ravel the the you know the pulley back in, and when it does so, it actually pulls harder. So when you pull out, that's that concentric phase, or like think of the downswing. And then it's training basically the backswing type movement or the eccentric motion to be stronger. And so it's a it's a more specific way. So if you think of golf as a rotary sport, it's a way to train specific rotation with the same way of training that we found gave golfers, you know, that 60% extra uh, gain in, in a three-month period. Um, and when we did that, we saw over double the club wow. speed gain. Um, so that's where we've started to see, so that's where I say, everyone at home, Google eccentric flywheel training, see if you can find one for your house. Um, you know, that's the, there's, there's tons of different machines and companies and brands, but that's really, uh, what we've found is, you know, so when we can say, Hey, 
all you, the reason we say 90 minutes is because we know, you know, the, the eccentric motion, do you, you know, are we looking at training, getting that rotational side stronger? And do you have the motion? So do you have the motion to rotate and are you stronger in that rotational motion? You can do a lot fewer exercises and see a lot better results than spending, you know, I know some guys that come in, they spend 90 minutes a day in the gym doing the same routine for the last, you know, 10 years. You switch them up and you say, hey, yeah, let's do now like you know, two hours a week, maybe, <laughs> and just do these things. They look at you like you're like, don't know what the heck you're talking about, and you got three heads. And they come back, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I have way more energy. I can play way more golf because I'm not in the gym so much. <laughs> I feel better, and, hey, the ball's going further, too. Is that supposed to happen? But, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that definitely is. <laughs> Hey, hey, Chris, we've seen lots of players now. You mentioned medicine balls a little while ago. We see them throwing yeah. medicine balls off the wall to build strength and speed. You guys looked at that as well and, and jumps and medicine ball chest presses and all that sort of stuff. Talk yep. about the study you did with those. Yeah, so we're nerds, in case you haven't figured that out, Chris. We just do studies <laughs> all day. <laughs> um, so, so basically what we do is, you know, we look at, like, basically look, we we we're kind of like trolls on social. We look and say, all right, what's everybody doing? What what does the average golfer think works? And then we go and we, we look in the you know all the research and say, all right, is there actually any research that says it works? And then if there isn't, or if the research we find is pretty bad, which in the most case in the golf space is very bad, you know, then then we go and we set up these studies and we actually run them because we're just we're curious and we want to see what the answer is. So you know, obviously if you go on any you know golf fitness or in any of the pro golfers, you'll see them throwing the medicine balls like you said. And so we were like, well, does that actually work? Like, how do we actually know that that works? So we, we took a, all of our, we've got about 100 members at our facility in Morrisville in person. So we do all these studies with our in-person members. Um, and we basically, we, we, we lovingly call them our lab rats because we, we control everything. And we, we set up their, you know, their programs. And we had one group who was just doing medicine ball work. And we had another group who didn't do any medicine ball work. All they did was train. Uh, we, know, we know that upper body push power. Um, so think of like if you're doing like a like sitting on a chair and um, taking a medicine ball and doing kind of throwing a chest pass, throwing the ball, that that sort of motion, or like a bench press sort of motion. Um, that that motion or that power or strength in that direction, as well as vertical leap, so your ability to think of how high you can jump. So like a squat or a deadlift type motion, those produce, uh, if we get real geeky into ground forces, those produce vertical forces. Those are the two that have a statistically significant impact in clubhead speed, meaning we know that if we get those two uh, motions stronger, more powerful, club speed should go up. So what we did is, so we had one group who just trained, <laughs> excuse me, the no medicine balls, but just trained push push power and vertical leap power. And the other group did kind of traditional strength training, and then they did all road, they did all the medicine ball training. So that was the only difference between the two groups. It was one group did medicine balls, and the other group did the the power training for push, upper body push and jumps. And at the end, any, are you, 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 I, think I, I think we sent you the study, so you already know the answer. But most people, when you ask them, you say, hey, so which group, which one do you think, which, which group do you think, you know, you know did better? Uh, I made the mistake of sending you the answers ahead of time. But yeah, everybody says medicine ball. So, oh, yeah, medicine ball. Definitely. It's rotational. It's got to get stronger. When we looked at the data, medicine balls got no faster, like zero. Like they're really like. Compared to the, the, the lower body explosive power, the upper body explosive power, the medicine balls did nothing. Uh, so if we're trying to – this is, I think, a, a huge takeaway for everybody listening. 
if you're trying to get stronger for golf or trying to get faster for golf, uh, number one, don't throw medicine balls. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> number number two, most importantly, assess yourself. You know, you can do the assess, do an assessment, figure out do you have the mobility, do you have the the strength to support you know the the, the speed that you say that you want, um, and then let's figure out the best way for you to actually get it so you're not wasting your time. Uh, now, where we did find medicine balls to be and where we do find them and where we use them on a regular basis is if people have good mobility, if people's um, strength and power numbers are good, but their speed is low, um, you know, overspeed training is one way, is one uh, avenue we will go. The other is we will actually use medicine balls to help people get the feel of how to sequence using the ground correctly. So medicine balls are a great tool for helping people sequence ground reaction forces in, in terms of horizontal, there's, you know, side to side, force, there's up and down force, and there's rotary force. And in traditional golf instruction, you know, because video has been the, you know, the technology that's been most successful for people, the people take videos of their swing and they say, hey, look at my swing and all oh, my hips didn't clear there, or, you know, my, my shoulders are back. <clears throat> well, what comes before all of that is none of that happens unless you, you know, unless you use the ground. So if you use the ground correctly and you have good mobility, you should see the correct positions happening. You know, that's called kinematics. Kinetics is what we see in the ground. So the hips should go first, torso, arms, hand, club. That's kinematics. Kinetics is you should push toward the target, and there should be a rotary force, and there should be a vertical force at specific times in the downswing. And that drives the positions that we can see on video. Um, so that's been the, the really cool thing that we've been able to find is we say, hey, we are no longer using medicine balls with the idea that we think we're getting faster because we know that doesn't work. <laughs> But if in the in the specific case where a golfer has good mobility, that we know they're strong as heck, but they just can't figure out how to put it all together, we, we, we've come up with a name we call it transfer training. And then we'll use the medicine balls to help them transfer all the gains that they've made physically to actually be able to put it into, you know, the correct sequence that they use in the golf swing. Um, so anyone who's about to just throw their medicine ball away or burn it, you can keep it. <laughs> but just make sure we're using it in the right time, right place. Yeah. And Chris, you talked here in this last bit about using ground forces correctly. And we're, we're hearing a lot more about that in the golf swing over the last few years than, than we ever heard, at least in, in my lifetime, using the ground to help propel your swing. Talk about how we can go about using the ground forces properly. Yeah, so first thing is you drop $50,000 and get dual force plates. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's, 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 that's only what crazy people like me do. <laughs> but I think one of the reasons we're hearing more about it, Chris, to your point is, you know, they used to be like, you know, $100,000. Like they were only available in like, you know, university research lab settings, right? The The technology is getting cheaper, so it's becoming more accessible. So now we're getting crazy people like me who are doing, you know, running thousands of people through them and trying to figure them out. And I think that's where you're starting to see it's becoming a little bit more mainstream is we're starting to see the real connection between, hey, when the guys, you know, when, when the golfer's in all those correct positions, if we look at like a 3D kinematic graph and the hips went first and like it's an efficient swing, well, there's the same sort of mapping or efficiency that we should see in how somebody uses the ground. There's exact ratios. There's timings of those ratios. I think one of my favorite examples is we have a, we've got a, he's 20, a 21 year old who's playing one of the local universities, high level division one, you know, big, very successful amateur golfer. 
he swings about 100 and he's like 118, I think. So high teens, 118, 118 miles an hour. We have a 59-year-old guy uh, member um, who is not a very successful golfer, probably probably like a 10 handicap, um, maybe high singles. Um, both of them produce the same exact amount of force, and we measure them on the ground on the on the force blade. So they're both producing the same amount of force, um, but the 59-year-old swings a, like he's 101. He just crested over 100. Um, and so the, you sit there scratching your head and you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought someone was stronger and they put more force on the ground, then the club should go faster, right? So then you actually look at when the timing of it happens, and the 21-year-old, he's applying that, that, that amount of force, you know, before his lead arm is parallel on the downswing. So, you know, basically between top of backswing and before P5, right? The 59-year-old who's, you know, almost 20 miles, or 20 miles an hour slower, guess when he applies that force? On the after he hit the golf ball. Oh, it's, actually, wow. it's actually after he's hit the golf ball. So he hits the golf ball, and then he finally stands up. And it's because he doesn't have, or historically he had very bad hip internal, he had hip rotation problems on his lead leg, so he, was, he wouldn't clear his hip. Now that he has that hip rotation, he doesn't know how the heck to use it. So he still has that bad habit of applying all that force after he's hit the golf ball. Um, so, so that's where it's the, the cool stuff, the cool thing about ground reaction forces is as you understand them, it's like cheating. It literally is like cheating, Chris. You can change you know, with, with high-level golfers. You can be like, hey, we just need a little bit more force here. And it's like immediately, boom, speed goes up. Or if you want to change a launch, you can change launch angles. It's, it's incredible what can happen by the understanding of how your body and how your feet are using the ground and, and the impact that it then has on body movement. And then ultimately, obviously, that's going to impact, you know, club characteristics and whatnot. But I think that's why we're hearing more about ground reaction forces. Uh, I think for the average golfer listening right now, I will tell you from our stats, 75 to 80% of you don't even pass the mobility test, which at that like, don't even worry about ground reaction forces because you're not going to be able to produce correct ground reaction forces if you don't, <laughs> you know, if you can't move, right? So it's kind of like, like you said, ground reaction forces are the new sexy thing. That, that's the, that's the Right. <laughs> Let's focus on A, which is can can we move? Can we get from point A to point B? Great. Now are we strong enough to you know to actually support those movements and do them repeatedly and safely, and actually support faster speeds? And then if we can do that, then it's a matter of then it's the fun stuff that we see on social media, overspeed training and you know the story I told of the guy he went from 101 to 127 or whatever it was right. Like those are the cool marketing the, the headline grabbers. Those are less than five percent. You know, 95% of us have really basic low-hanging fruit that with 90 minutes a week, you know, if you know, if you do more, it goes quicker. But 90 minutes a week at least of just putting in the doing the right stuff can make a massive difference in terms of the longevity, your longevity in the game, playing, you know, into your 80s beyond and, and maintaining that level. You know, even, you know, if you're a high-level amateur or collegiate player, maintaining it, you know, into your 40s, 50s and, and, and older. And uh, actually, this is this is a fun stat that I did not share with you yet, Chris. Do you, if you had to guess, what is the age at which the body starts rebelling and uh, father time, like we see all of clubhead speed start dropping? Any guesses? Uh, clubhead speed starts to drop at forty. Very good. Forty-one is the actual actual number. But wow. yeah, 
41. It's, it's actually funny. You see, you see everything sort of climbing, and then there's just this massive cliff at 41. Something terrible happens to the human body at 41. <laughs> we haven't figured that one out yet. But <laughs> it's just at 41, it's like, oh, my gosh. So you feel bad for all those, the, the PGA and you know, the pros, you know, and they hit their, like, early 40s, and they're just waiting for 50 for the senior tour. Like It's like, oh, we now we know why. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Chris, before I let you go, you've, you've talked about the mobility test. How can we go out there on your site and, and learn about it, read about it, and actually do it? Yeah, for sure. So we actually put together a page for all the listeners. Uh, people want to go to um, par4success, P-A-R, the number 4success.com, slash next. Uh, and you guys can just you know, put your email in so we can send it to you. Uh, we'll we send it over to them. It takes probably seven minutes to go through the mobility test. Uh, you'll be able to see how you compare clubhead speed-wise to other golfers your age from our from our database. Um, and then if anyone's interested, we also offer a free call um, with our golf fitness guys so you can jump on. They can kind of you can tell them how you did. They'll tell you what it means and kind of give you an idea of some stuff that you guys can start to work on. But, um, yeah, but par4success.com slash next. And, um, you know, use it to see where you're at now. And I can't I always can't stress enough reuse it every every month just you know continue to monitor your body particularly if you're playing a bunch and then obviously we're getting into the fall and then winter's coming around the corner uh, it's just a great tool to use um and you know our hope is that as many people as possible grab it and, and use it as a resource to you know for the right information uh to hopefully play the game as long as everybody would like to and chris before i let you go let our listeners know not just all all, all about what we can find on your website but then how can we stay up to date with all the great things that you guys are putting out there, whether it's on social media and you've, you've got a great yeah. YouTube channel as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, it's just at par for success on pretty much everything. So uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, we put out content every week, film uh, new content I've released every week on YouTube, tons of educational stuff. Um, we tend, we'll tend to leak some of the research uh, a little bit there too. So that, that's probably the YouTube is probably the best place. Uh, to stay up to date with kind of the, late, the latest and greatest that we're coming out with um, from a research standpoint. But just, it's just par for success, P-A-R, the number four success. Uh, people can find us any of those platforms. Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show again tonight. Hopefully we get to have you back on a little quicker next time around. But you're awesome, my friend, yeah. the, the things that you guys are doing. We hope we get to catch up with you again soon. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Chris. We'll talk to you soon. You bet. Take care, Chris. That is the great Chris Finn. Again, par, the number four, success.com is the website. You put in parforsuccess.com forward slash next, and you'll be able to go through and, and take those mobility tests, see where you're at. I mean, what it, to Chris's great point at the end there, fall and winter's coming, right? So we're not going to be out on the golf course quite as much as, as, as we would like, and for some of us, not at all. But let's stay in shape over that time. Let's get our bodies right. Let's see where we are from a mobility test standpoint and then keep testing ourselves. And again, the YouTube channel is fantastic, folks. So many great stretches and exercises and drills that you can do out there to get your body in shape. And, and like we say, you know, clubhead speed's king nowadays, gets us more distance. Let's find out how we're doing. Let's unlock some of that. And Chris has given it to you for free. Why not do it? Again, par the number four success.com forward slash next. We'll catch up with Chris again sometime here, hopefully very soon.
Okay, before I close up shop tonight, I want to remind you about a couple of more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shield sports stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two Under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXTT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the Two Under website. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. We deal with a lot on the golf course, whether you're teeing off in front of a crowd Hitting a four iron after a rain delay, trying to figure out wind direction, or second guessing club selection. It's easy for your mind to race. That's exactly what drove Golf Pride to create the all new CPX. It's made with a unique EXO diamond quilted pattern, reducing vibration in your hands on every shot. The EX diamond quilted pattern really helps your hands sink into the club on every shot, giving you maximum comfort because when your hands are comfortable, you're comfortable. CPX is available now on GolfPride.com or at your local retailer. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. I want to send out my sincere thanks again to Neil Lancaster, Julie Inkster, and Chris Finn for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patchery, will be back with us. We'll get a return visit from Allison Fillmore, vice president of development for the PGA Tour. And Brenda Kalkovecchia, Mark's wife, caddy, and much funnier follow on Twitter, will be here as well. Looking forward to having Brenda as part of the show. So it's going to be a great one, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of the show with us. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcast app out there. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. Folks, if you've got a favorite podcasting app, we're probably on that one too. Just type in next on the T in the search bar you'll probably find us on there as well. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, we give you links back to recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got great content on there available for you. Folks, I can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to this show again tonight. I know you've got a lot of great podcasts out there to choose from. I am very thankful that you continue to make Next on the Tea one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation, like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction, inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com. 